Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to episode 22 of the PetroNerds Podcast with Ethan Bellamy and Trisha Curtis. It is July 19th, 2021, and oil prices have fallen 6% today. Now it's sixty-seven fifty. It's Monday. Yeah, we're we're backsliding hard this morning. We're backsliding hard, and and everything else is in evaporation too, including natural gas, which is still holding up pretty strong and almost three ninety in January twenty-two. And then JKM prices are backwardated as well. Propane is super backwardated because it's it's short right now. Anyway, we're going to cover two topics today. We're going to cover more OPEC commentary. And that's the proximate cause of the the backslide in oil with the UAE agreement with OPEC. And then secondarily, Tricia went to Doug Permian in Fort Worth, Texas, where a lot of our friends and colleagues were. And uh, she's going to give us a download there. But first, Tricia, let's dive into oil prices in OPEC. Yes. Well, let's um. So, and we'll try to be as timely as possible with this. I'm in um. I'm in an Airbnb, so hopefully this is working. I I was gonna. In beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. I'm blue. Yeah, in Buffalo, Wyoming, and I can say on the drive up here, I will just know on the drive up here, I can tell you that there were a lot of windmills that were actually blowing, working where I saw the the windmill spinning. But yesterday, from Casper to Buffalo. When you saw the windmills, they weren't moving an inch. I mean, they were. It's very, very hot, and they weren't moving at all. I mean, they were completely, completely stagnant. But I got a lot of photos of that. Um, so I'll be tweeting various pictures. But yes. Yeah, so today, this backsliding. One, we can just start here. We're sixty-eight, sixty-seven. You know, in change on WTI. Brent's at sixty-nine. We have this really tight spread between WTI and Brent. But that backsliding should have happened last week. So one, I mean, the fact that. N- Nobody, and I tried to explain this at Doug, nobody should have traded up. Not having a deal with an OPEC, I think the market interpretation was it wanted to go higher and people were trying to bid up prices. So you didn't have an agreement to add 400,000 barrels a day back to the market. You shouldn't have slid on that agreement. It wasn't going to slide in the first place. So not having an agreement, it should have actually backslid a little because the odds are producers would have, um, if you don't have an agreement in place, the odds are higher that they're going to eke more output out than less. But I think the market interpreted it saying, well, if you don't have an agreement, you're not going to add the needed 400,000 barrels a day back to the market. And I think the IEA came out with their report last week, their monthly report, and basically they had a warning. And this was, I, I spoke about this at the Doug too. They had a warning that you know, we're t- it's it's basically you have a risk to the upside and you have a risk to the downside because things are so close right now. And so they were essentially saying, you know, we, we could not have enough supply, but we could easily have too much supply, essentially. So I think it's important to put this in context that, I mean, we're talking about uh, we're t- the same agreement that we were talking about last week with the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and UAE did not agree um, basically, they didn't agree to this uh, extension at their allocated amount. So they're all allocated a, a chunk of production under this OPEC plus agreement. And the UAE said, we don't want to extend that past April 22 into December of 2022 at the current allocated amount. So base, they, they were at a standstill and then they've come to the table and they've agreed on a number. And I think there is some fudging in this number because I've heard it a couple different ones. So they're they're basically at... Um, I've, I've, their production numbers I've heard is as high as 
you know, 2.7 million barrels per day to as high as 3 million barrels per day. And they want um, a higher output agreement. And so I think they wanted 3.65 million barrels per day. And I think they got their baseline agreement. They got 3.5 million barrels per day, which means not that they're going to increase up to that now, but it means that May 22 going forward, they can produce that much. And, and, you know, the market might be reacting this a little more intelligent than I'm giving credit for, because if you're, if the UAE and Saudi Arabia are allowing, you know, the UAE to increase their allocation by, you know, half a million barrels per day, the odds are that other countries are going to want this too. And whether or not they want it or not, or they fun, fully agree to it, production's going to be eking up. Thoughts, feelings, Ethan? So, yeah. So I guess the question is, does, is the market reading that as, okay, the UAE pushed and they got what they want. So does that therefore mean when that comes up for other producers that they're likely to bend and, and flex towards more supply as well? Number one. And then, you know, number two, if, if same scenario, but does that imply more cheating? Yeah, well, that's the thing is I think this cheating is it's it's very relevant. I mean, you're we're looking at um, I mean, we're looking at a situation in which countries can have have already cheated to an extent, right? They're eking out these barrels, and I was looking at the June IE. So, for, first of all, we've mentioned this. Uh, I'll, I'll keep honing in on this and and, and re saying it, but just because you see a production figure, you know, those often get revised. So I am seeing multiple numbers for production uh, for, for OPEC producers from OPEC and IEA and other sources and multiple numbers of the allocation. They're not all the same. So somebody's wrong, somebody's right, or it's somewhere in between. But the reality is, is that, you know, when, if you're off by a hundred thousand barrels a day on every country, this is a few hundred thousand barrels a day in the market. That's a, 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 a can have meaningful ramifications. So as of June, the IEA numbers for Iraq were 3.9. And I've seen um, just the numbers I saw were basically Iraq was over 4 million barrels per day. Iran, like the the market's also really, you know, this baked in bullishness on Iran was that, well, we won't have a deal. We don't have a deal yet on the on a nuclear agreement. We talked about this in the last podcast. We talked about a bunch of them that they don't have the agreement. So the market and traders are, are, are baking that in as positive. I think the market wants to be bullish. I think traders wanted to take this higher and it's not, so it's not just this, right? We'll, we'll, I'll get back to these numbers in a second. It is the COVID fears. You know, there's a lot of worries that uh, the UK was basically supposed to have their, their opening day yesterday and it was supposed to be freedom day. And there's a lot of controversy going on in the UK because they have the Delta variant supposedly r- raging everywhere and, and COVID cases are going up. They're not having, seeing the increased hospitalizations. They actually have two thirds of the population has two, two jabs, you know, has, has the vaccination, but there's a lot of controversy, I think, politically on how they're opening up. And I think one of the, um, Boris Johnson's one of his guys in his cabinet, I actually the health secretary, maybe him or someone else got, um, got COVID didn't really have any symptoms. Boris Johnson did. Yeah. No, Boris Johnson's had it before, but Boris Johnson is being forced to basically quarantine. There's a lot of back and right. forth literally in the past two days of are they opening up, are they different rules? Uh, and so this Delta variant raging and, and different countries entering lockdown is got has got in, I think, in addition to the mark, you know, this, this open agreement has got the market a little spooked. Doesn't mean that it's that's proper interpretation and that the, it was probably boy prices went up too much on the back of no agreement. And the Iran thing is important because there is no agreement in place, but Iran has been increasing production regardless of no agreement in place. And to just for perspective, 
Iran in 2018 was producing 3.6 million barrels per day. Iran in 2019 was producing 2.4 million barrels per day. And now in May of 2021, Iran is producing was producing 2.5 million barrels per day and is probably a bit higher. So I think that, you know, could Iran add a few hundred thousand barrels a day output regardless of the agreement? Yes. And increasingly, what I'm hearing from more and more people and more and more analysts is that they don't believe that these they don't believe there's real spare capacity in the market. And last night, Amrita Sen with Energy Aspects, she was on on Bloomberg about midnight last night, and she was saying that you know she, uh, they're 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 notably bullish we've, um, on the oil market in general. But she doesn't think it, she didn't think it was a big cause for alarm that you know this they're adding four hundred thousand barrels a day output. I mean that was what we agreed to. She's right there that this shouldn't have been a big cause for alarm because this was supposed to happen two weeks ago. But she did, and she also she qualifies that there's a difference between your baseline and your and your alloc- basically your quota and your allocation and that these baseline allocations are not exactly quotas in that regard i think it's a, they're a little bit more fungible so it's not like you have a quote a, a production quota with an OPEC, you're granted about a certain allotment. Iran is basically excluded from that because of the sanctions and everything. And you have countries like Nigeria and Libya that have been excluded from that as well. So those can go willy-nilly up or down, but everybody else is sort of given a quota. The problem is quotas only matter to the extent that, that folks comply with them. And and we have had sort of extraordinary compliance within OPEC plus, um, you know, during this, during COVID and, and this recovering within COVID to recover oil prices. But uh, to me, they're all numbers and you have to actually hit them and the market has to interpret it. So if the baselines for UE are going up and it's going through this deals through the end of the year, essentially they're going to add 400,000 barrels a day back to the market through the end of the year. And right now, I mean, it's still five, it, it's still five, you know, 0.5 to 5.8 million barrels a day and change that's, that needs, that is being withheld from the market that does need to be added back. And I would say Michael Lynch, I saw him quoted, he's with the Energy Policy Research Foundation, which I'm also affiliated with as a, as a non-resident fellow and formerly worked there. I mean, he kind of thinks the same way I do. At least he was echoed in a couple articles last night saying, look, you're going to, that's a lot of spare capacity that does want to come back to the market. And when it does, the market has to absorb it. And demand's going up. We're looking, it's not like demand looks bad. I mean, IEA said this, you know, in the report, they said as of June, demand was, um, world supply was 95.6 million barrels a day and demand was 97 million barrels a day. And then you have, you've seen it. I mean, the ranges for demand are ranging, you know, all the way from recovering to over hundred million barrels a day before year end, um, to re- and recovering well over that, um, next year, which is why a lot of folks are calling for the shortfall. So what's interesting is that we're in sharp backwardation and after 2024 futures prices are showing sub $55 oil, which does not suggest some long-term inflationary commodity boost. Rather, it seems to show either or both of a huge boost in supply, which I don't think is the case, or demand destruction. So what do you think is going on in traders' minds post-2024? Because my assessment is that is, yeah, I mean, but post-2024, I mean, I don't think you can predict the economy that far. Maybe are people you saying, you know, we've we've had peak demand? Well, I think that they're um so futures prices are always are, are are great to look at and they're nice and they can tell you a lot of different things for different interpretations and we can we can argue about them, but they're only telling us our vantage point from today of what we think tomorrow's gonna be. And literally that vantage point tomorrow, if prices were to go back two bucks, that everything's gonna go back 
two bucks is going to move along along line two bucks. So they're only indicative of what we think today. I think that well, the fact that they're just backwardated tells you that that they that folks feel that prices will go down, and that 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 does not support the narrative of why why the bulls are up. I mean, it literally just doesn't support the bullish narrative. The bullish narrative is that. OPEC will not have enough spare capacity. U.S. Nobody is invested, not just in the U.S., but it within OPEC, and that our demand is increasing, will continue to increase, and we, we will be short. And we, we've d- dug into inventories more than people anticipated post, you know, during this COVID, you know, opening up and recovery, and we'll be short on oil, on oil and, and gas as well, for that matter. Um, but it will be short on oil, and that's that's what's driving prices high. Now. The problem is that's what's driving prices high now. We don't yet have a shortfall. And so I think people often get sticky in the trading of like, this is the narrative for the long bullish thesis that you're trying to bear out now in your actual traders bear it out. And this is why, you know, something that was supposed to happen two weeks ago that the market had already priced in is now moving the price of oil. The exacer, in my opinion, the fears about this Delta variant are exacerbated because in a lot of these economies, there are folks re- resisting sort of these these shutdowns and a lot of these kind of these most you you've had two vaccines right Ethan or you've had both shots yes. I've had both shots yep. you know I mean I'm in Buffalo Wyoming and I can tell there isn't there isn't a mask to be seen um, in this town or, or largely the state of Wyoming but it's it's open right and and people are open up and it would probably be pretty hard to like shut it down same in Texas maybe a little different obviously it's still different on the coast but even there I think we're seeing obviously things are opening up and rebounding and we're about ready to see you know what happens we'll see what happens this fall with, with unemployment and stuff but the this backwardation and where prices are at is telling me i don't the market is um either thinks supply is coming back to some degree or that demand is declining um or a combination of both i do think it was interesting the eia came out with their short-term energy outlook i don't know if you saw that but they showed you know they basically show this nice clean little graph of supply and demand coming perfectly in line and um so that's basically global supply and demand coming perfectly in line but they think u.s production will come up and i agree i think u.s production is coming up you cannot see the, you know, we're north of 240 frack fleets. Um, Those are not fully utilized for sure. Um, But you can't have the frack fleet increasing. You can't have the rig count increasing. And you can't, and we have well additions increasing. And we are seeing product, we we have a pretty significant productivity gains across the board from, you know, how long we're drilling these laterals, the output of these wells. U.S. production is going to rise. It's not going to go to the moon. We're not going to recover to 13 million barrels per day tomorrow, but it's not going to stay at 11 million barrels a day forever. That's just not going to happen. And that that 11 million barrels per day, and I think we mentioned this before, but that's 2 million barrels a day. That's been a gift to OPEC. So we've given them a nice little gift of, of not bringing this 2 million barrels a day back, but they're going to have to contend when I feel like people just aren't adding up the numbers. Let's just pretend the U.S. adds 500,000 barrels a day. Let's pretend Iran adds a couple hundred thousand barrels per day. Let's pretend the Saudis, eat, you know, a few hundred thousand barrels per day and the UAE is a few hundred. We're starting to get into the millions when we start saying a few hundred, a few hundred, a few hundred. Everybody does a little hundred, a hundred here. I don't personally think it's as hard for countries to eke out 100,000 barrels a day as all these, you know, people who are saying the same thing. We've drawn down inventories really hard. We're going to have a shortfall of investment. I've heard this story before, and I said this at the Doug conference, but I mean, I 
I had basically spent a long time art, uh, having a lot of fun with the the folks at my table at the speakers dinner. But I mean, I've heard the story before. It was a I've heard it from 2010 to to now. And I'm not saying I won't be wrong, but we can't have prices spike and and the Saudis want to drive oil prices higher, and we can have this. Certainly, we can, but they will come back down to earth. We we cannot have prices going to the moon without them coming back down to earth, and that may come in line with a recession. Like those futures prices make me anxious that they would come down. You know, they look they're so far backwarded, you know, are people now starting to think that we're going to be in recessionary territory and, and demand is going to decline? Or do they think that's supply? And if you talk to anyone on the other side, no one thinks that, you know, they don't think everyone's opening up the taps tomorrow. But I just $68 oil is is high prices. You know, these are not low prices. People can make money here. Um, and, you know, I heard today someone say that, you know, the Saudis want to take oil to, to over 100. And I've heard that. I've actually heard that multiple times. I heard that at the, at the Doug conference as well. They they didn't they changed that all the time. They wanted to get oil prices to to forty. They wanted to get oil prices to sixty. Now they apparently they want to get it over a hundred. I mean that says wanting to take something higher isn't uh, you know necessarily it it should be there. The fundamentals actually support that. Okay, why don't we move to Doug Permian and give us some download on uh, on what you heard in Fort Worth. Doug Permian was fun. Um, it was a blast. It was packed with a lot of folks. I mean, and so my initial read on this whole thing was that, and I think a lot of folks have the same read on this, is that there were probably 3,000 to 4,000 people there um, in the room. I mean, I'm guessing the room was fully packed at, you know, 2,000 people for most of, the, most of these presentations. But I have to say the, the interest on OPEC itself and the dynamics within OPEC and the macro were huge. Um, and that always is telling to me because it's it's it is that unknown understanding the full macro picture and, and actually interpreting that for your activity is huge. But the bullish thesis was rampant. I mean, um, Marshall Atkins gave a you know his presentation in the morning and it was very 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 bullish from Raymond James on where oil is going to go. Um, he was at my uh, table for the speaker center and we had a, a decent long conversation on that. But I would say the majority of the product of, of ENPs of CEOs all had a pretty bullish narrative thesis on oil. And they also also had a very, I would say, a bullish narrative on their production and their outlook. And I don't mean bullish on price. I mean, their bullishness on, on how well they're doing uh, and how well they're doing in the business. And this uh, this is almost every, you, you, you didn't see a producer there that didn't say how well they were doing. And of course, you have to say that, right? That you're not going to get up there and say you're doing poorly. But this is a reality. I mean, we're seeing this across the board. And it, I really do liken this back to 2014 when you go to a conference and it's it's packed with thousands of people and, and you got sand companies everywhere. I mean, this felt like I had lots of service companies and, and folks I was hanging out with that said, you know, the quote was, we're back. Like, I mean, it was every, the booths are packed, everybody's packed, people are drinking and, and everybody's super excited. And it, and part of that's like, this is the first time folks have been together in the industry in, in over a year. So, I mean, people are excited to be back together, but in terms of whether or not that equates to actual deal flow is different. Um, but in terms of, you know, you have over half the rigs are private companies. And I I didn't see a single operator who gave a presentation that didn't say we're doing better. And you hear things like themes, like we're landing in zone better, where our, we're, we are drilling longer laterals. You know, we've, you know, we, we've increased our efficiencies here. We've gotten better at this. We've gotten better at that. And these are incremental ads, which we've talked about, but these are validated. This is, you know, th this is from anecdotal evidence to what you actually see bear out in the data of the actual longer laterals and of the actual productivity. It's very real. But what you increasingly hear with that is kind of this narrative of 
we're doing great. It's awesome. But we have this very, very bullish thesis on oil. And it's, it's partly because they say, well, we just have this massive shortfall of investment. Uh, they're investing. Those individual companies that are out there explaining what they're doing are investing. This we Drilling for oil is investing. So, I, you know, I, I'm a little bit lost in terms of, you know, the massive shortfall investment. I know that we, it's not the same as it used to be. I mean, we're, we're, we are, you know, billions of dollars shy of actual long-term investing of sinking those dollars in. But I'm not quite sure we often, we appreciate the, it's not massive supply response, but it's the activity response that maybe we, people don't interpret as long-term investing. If you're drilling, I, I'm calling that investing. You're spending money. You're putting a bit in the ground and oil is going to come out eventually, whether it's a it's a duck or not. So I, I think that the fact that the rig count, count continues to increase, that the frack fleet count is continuing to increase is huge. Um, the other thing I would note, and I, I mentioned this, but I am really fascinated um, and I think you fall, you've, you know, look at the frackly count, but I'm fascinated that the frackly count, what I've heard is it's 13 to 15 in 13, to 15 frackly running in the Bakken. And we have, you know, eight as of last Baker Hughes, it was 18 rigs running in the Bakken. And that's probably closer to 20 now. But I mean, that means your, your frack fleet count and your, your spread between your frack fleets and your rig count is extremely narrow. And the reason for that is, um, is at least I'm being told I need to, we'll have to tease this out in the data to see if it bears fruit in the actual delayed data, but that your these wells are being drilled. I'm being told as quickly as seven days. Now that may be exacerbated. That may be a little bit exaggerated, but honestly drilling a 10,000, you know, good 10,000 foot lateral in 10, you know, seven to 10 days is pretty huge. And you're, that's means you're drilling that well in a week. And so your frack crew has to come and frack that. And so obviously North Dakota and the Wilson basin, it's summer. The weather is good. You want to drill and complete as many wells as humanly possible while the weather is good. So things are going to be abnormally, you know, seasonally high in, um, over the summer, but it's still very impressive. What do you, th- what do you think that. that says about the, the duck count? The real duck count. Yeah. Do you think that that tightening of the fracta? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you brought this up before of looking, because I think you're showing, you were telling me you're seeing on Bloomberg that, that, you know, sometimes that lags, but that duck count is, is ebbing and flowing, right? Your interpretation of that is it's sort of ebbing and flowing. I think, yeah, well, just that the rigs, the rigs in the frack counter are compressing. And I think that maybe the easy inventory that propped up 2020 and, the first quarter of 2021 is now gone. So Absolutely. we, we yep. actually need to drill new wells. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think that, well, I think the duck count is no longer, you can never, just like, just like rigs and flat fleets, you cannot look at them the same way you did pre-COVID. You're not going to get the same. If you're looking at them and, and expecting the same result from your analytical mindset, it's, it's probably not correct because ducks are now a function of, you know, of, of short, can be short inventory, can be long inventory. I mean, if you're looking at Exxon and you're looking at their 500, you know, sub 500 ducks in the Permian, that's pretty real. But they are adding frack rates pretty fast to go to drill through their, to hit their production targets. That's different though. If I'm a private company like Endeavor or Crown Quest and I just, you know, don't have a frack fleet running and I have a rig running and I, I continue to, you know, that that's just the timing of everything. And I bring that frack fleet back in a couple months and then my duck count happens to be higher. That's not necessarily the same type of ducks we would think about, you know, during COVID or during a downturn where you're, you're ramping that up. So it's a function of how fast you're, you're completing. Oh, the other, one of these big takeaways too, I'll notice there is, we, we've, I mentioned this before, but, um, 
I saw my friends Nomad Prop and there that are, um, you know, looking to do their, you know, the on-site uh, sand stuff. But I think the sand, there was a, the last presentation, one of the last presentations on the second day was a panel of folks. And I would say that, you know, folks on the sand side and the water side are, are seeing this tightness because, you know, tightness actually at the well, you know, the demand at in certain moments of time when people are fracking because of these, what we talked about twin, you know, folks talk about, say, twin fracks or simofracks, and they're basically, it's, you know, the fracking two wells at once or, or, or something to that degree. And there's a lot of confusion on that because when I ask people about that, there's a lot of hesitancy um, to understand, to say what it is. Do we have twice the amount of equipment on site? Do we basically have two frack fleets on site and we're, we're fracking at once? Even if that was just the case, the reality is, is that if you're if you're fracking two wells at once, I don't care if it's two frack fleets and you're fracking two wells at once on a, on a four well pad. The reality is, is that you have a massive demand for, you know, at that moment, you have double the sand demand, you have double the fluid demand, double the wa water demand, whatever you're doing, you have double. And so I have heard several examples and several instances of folks basically saying they're they're having a hard time getting all the sand that they need. They're having a hard time getting everything that they need in that moment. And the reality is, is that more companies have, you basically need a, at least a four-wheel pad to do a simulfrac, to do these, you know, see these efficiencies. And so even if it's, let's just pretend it's it's two full frack fleets and all the equipment, but you're doing, you're putting those next to each other and you're fracking two wells at once. And the reality is it's not, it's it's a fraction of, you know, it's, it's something between one and two frack fleets, right? Probably the same people. And the reason this is a big deal is because it's probably not being perfectly quantified um, and qualified for that matter in terms of that frack fleet number. When we see 240 frack fleets, you know, how many of those are are doing the simofracks? And I've heard in in I've heard in North Dakota that it's a it's a pretty high number, at least all of all of Halliburton's are doing it. And so folks are really excited if they're running, you know, if they have a four-wall pad, they can basically do these simofracks, but it's the demand pull is 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 tight. So we're seeing I would say exacerbated tightness on that. But when you talk to the sand and water guys, they're saying it's a pretty big deal because it's changing all the metrics and it's changing all the interpretations of, of how this is going to unfold, you know, how, how people are actually looking at this. So I would say it's, it's no different than, you know, use auto sales going skyrocketing and us that being the single biggest indicator, you know, single biggest component of inflation. This is no different in the oil space. Everything is a little bit wonky and a little bit different. And I would say, I, what I'm, what I feel in here is that we're using sort of conventional metrics to think about one. It's already an unconventional space, but it's morphed a lot. Um, it morphed a lot during COVID. It morphed a lot with minus minus thirty seven WTI, and it's recovering in a way that is is um, looks a little bit different. And I would truly, I think, honestly, from a resiliency perspective, I think productivity looks really good. And I think it's morphing in a way that probably isn't being fully understood or interpreted. Did you confirm or deny the? trend of mine mouth frack and propping activity sand mining near uh, the near the well yeah so it was mentioned um i think it, it was mentioned in one of the uh, so the simon frack stuff was that no one got into details on it it was definitely mentioned multiple times you heard it in several presentations where somebody would say twin fracks or simon fracks or whatever and they talk about the efficiencies or whatever and then you definitely heard the demand on all the, the you know, the demand pull on sand and, you know, the fracking two wells at once. And then you, I did hear at least twice, um, I did hear at least twice the mining on location. Um, and, you know, there, that's still lots of folks are, are, you know, analyzing that and trying to interpret that and understand that of, of how real that is um, and how, how well it works. And, you know, folks would say, well, does it have the geology? I think, 
now that I've been, you know, to the Midland and, and we talked about that in a couple previous podcasts of driving around and looking at that, I mean, this is, you're literally scooping up sand on site. So I think the geology of the Permian Basin is pretty well suited for lots of the sand, you know, on the geology is the geology and it's just teasing it out. I, I do, there, there is one issue with it and is that you have to have the frack equipment to be pumping, um, if you're not drying the sand and then pumping it, so you have to have the right frack equipment to do this, that you're, you know, look, I think the market will adapt. If, if you're um, not drying out the sand, you're saving all this money on location or, but you have to have a big enough company. It has to be a, we're talking EOG, Exxon style, you know, and not necessarily that, but a company that's going to mow down a specific area. I mean, outside of Midland, I, when we were driving outside of Midland, there's this huge area with just, you know, tons of pump jacks, like very, very consolidating with, one location. And I think that was, that's an old RSP field that they, they basically just mowed down and you, you need that. But if you think about that, if you're going to have 20, 30, 40, 50 wells pretty close together, it would make sense to mine your sand locally. Um, and then you're not hauling it. You're not waiting on a truck driver. You're not, I mean, you're, you're taking out a lot of the things that will cause you consternation when prices are going up and when diesel prices are going up and when you have lack of people and you have all those things. And oh my gosh, did you hear that? Holy crap. There is a massive lack of people. I mean, we hear you, you hear that all day on the market. You're familiar with this, but like every, everybody knows like in every industry from come and go to, um, to the grocery store, to anywhere you can't find to the restaurant, you can't find people. And you know that if you've been out to dinner in Denver, that your wait is like an hour. I mean, nobody can find people. And in the oil industry, every single, almost every single presentation, every single company talked about the, the the inability to get enough people. And I think certainly on the server side, we're seeing that. And we're definitely starting to it'll see, be, I mean, they're seeing- It'll be real, real interesting when the unemployment benefits run out and we see how that changes the labor supply. Yes. I mean, we're going to have, these podcasts are going to be great come September when we start seeing this roll off. And you've heard that, I mean, I think some states want to roll this off sooner. They're trying to roll this off sooner, but yeah, I don't think somehow. we're really going to feel reality until, um, you know, you can- giving your principal. I don't think we're probably going to feel reality tell it that is off. So what September, and then it'll probably take a little time for folks to realize it. And maybe you start seeing a little sooner where people realize, Hey, I have to have a job and I'm going to have to have some income and people start going back to work and, and that will help. But I do, I think from the service side, I mean, it's just the cost of diesel, you know, diesel prices, oil prices are going up. And so diesel prices are going up. So you're, you know, that's all, you know, yes, the, if you're trucking anything, the cost of that's going up from a diesel perspective, and then you're looking for a driver and you don't have all those drivers. So you, that's, you, you're feeling that tightness. Yeah. So a couple of observations, we have a couple of big macroeconomic variables coming up. One is the end of the eviction moratorium, which ought to be really telling for the housing market, housing supply, um, as well as how many evictions actually happen. And so that is, uh, I think, you know, there are a lot of opinions on what's going to happen there, but we'll see. It's clearly a source of uncertainty. The second is, you know, do how do people handle the, the new Delta variant? And, you know, I, I actually think that the, the weakness in the back of the board on crude oil is in part due to uncertainty around continuing lockdowns and the impact on global jet fuel demand, because that's still the one place we haven't seen things come back as international travel. And then the third, of course, is the unemployment benefits in the U.S. So I, I think those are all very salient. But I want to help us. Uh, I think I want to start a new segment. I didn't talk to you about this before. I want to put you on the spot. Week to okay. week, we're going to do short-term short term commodity price forecasts. 
So oh, man. crude oil and natural gas. So this this will be good. We'll get we'll sharpen our, our forecasting. So so right now we're at sixty six fifty. We're down seven point four percent today on the August. We're, contract we've slid like a buck and a half since we've started recording. Yeah, it's 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 not looking good. So sixty six fifty. Uh, where do you think WTI will be next week? Well, the August is, contract. Well, this is this is ridiculous because the reason is because look, people want to know. They want to know. Well, sixty six though is that you know I you know if you're at sixty six right now, that tells me that it, prices were way too high because look, the Delta variant is not as. It, we talked, we've talked about this in multiple previous podcasts. We have, you know, Vietnam has been shut down, you know, it has still had lockdowns. We've had stuff, you know, it's apparently it's raging in South Africa, but a lot of these countries have not fully shut down. And so at, to your point that we haven't seen international travel pick up, but we've seen domestic travel and all in, in most places pick up. Look at the, you know, IEA came out with their monthly report. The International Energy Agency came out with their monthly report that I, I saw on, you know, last week when I was at Doug and I looked at it and it showed that mobility indices everywhere, including Europe, were way up. And we know that we have higher traffic in most cities than pre-COVID. So, you know, that all tell, like the fact that prices are sliding today is out of fear and out of unwarranted bid up in prices last week. So I would have said last week it shouldn't have gone up and it shouldn't be going down to the degree it's going down. Traders need to chill out. Um, well, the people, if you're if you're producing, oil, they will not. They won't chill. And traders move this up okay. and down. So I think you know traders are traders and they're moving. Okay, this so give me a number. Eight. Give me give me a number. Well, see, I, they'll probably I, tomorrow. The market isn't gonna, tomorrow. The market could look a lot better. People will just you know calm and you know they'll be all all rational and everything, and it'll it'll go down. I don't think I don't think prices have much room to. They can go down and up five bucks on a whim because people are afraid or people are excited. They shouldn't be going. Prices shouldn't be hitting 50, 65 and they shouldn't be hitting seventy five. You should okay. be in a, so okay. So so not what's right your now. Not, Next week, I have no clue. Not not with today backsliding a buck fifty. I'm not. I'm not even going to go. Okay. On that. I can tell you that I think production's I th going up. Production. So going you say up, sixty-five so. to seventy-five dollar band is the right price, Goldilocks. I think we go a little bit lower. I think we next week will be at sixty-three. If people, if if the overall market sentiment is negative, if the overall market, if we're down another five hundred points or whatever, yes, if the overall market sentiment because this is being driven down by the fears of this Delta variant against the back of what everyone was excited about this reopening trade, and that's what people are afraid of. I do want to, I want to link this back a bit because I do think the Fed and the dollar matters, and you know, I will, I'll shout out to Marshall mm -hmm. Atkins again because he he gave me a shout out and Chuck Gates during his presentation talking about inflation, and you know, he put a nice chart up. You know, he um, and you'll see this on LinkedIn if you're following LinkedIn. I think some folks put me up there and, and Marshall as well. And I think, you know, he he basically just explained that no, his interpretation is no matter what oil prices have to go higher based upon inflation, because the Fed adding four trillion in assets in 12 months going from four point two to 12, 12 trillion. And basically, you know, everybody knows 25 percent of, you know, all dollars printed have been printed in essentially the past year. So massive amount of dollar printing and that all that money sloshing around the global system and that you know, that's, that's a big deal. Right. And we have this, we, we have this inflation in the dollar. The problem is that, you know, if we do, uh, if we, if the dollar gets stronger, you know, and we do, you know, the fed curbs interest rate or the fed stops QE and, and we start tapering and the dollar gets stronger, um, oil prices have to, it, they go inversely, right. They will have to, you know, reflect that at some point. So, I mean, what's happening today 
doesn't it is it is fears of this delta variant which i don't think are completely warranted yesterday i was listening to a bbc episode and they actually had some doctors on bbc that were explaining very clearly that they you know they were encouraging and they were saying that the UK should have opened up earlier because they should have vaccinated the elderly people and they should have opened up and had a higher restraint for, you know, a, a broader uh, population response that people had more immunities in the in the system and that the, you know, the people that need the the vaccination needed it the most, but that they would have had a broader immunity response. So what I'm explaining is the interpretation of this is still all over the map. We've been, we're, we're on our second year into this virus and the interpretation still of it are, are, um, extremely opaque and murky, and the market just responds such knee-jerk reactions. You know, was the opening trade, and then you have the Delta variant, and you know, it's basically just another. You know, the virus is still spreading and it's moving around, but a lot of people have vaccinations, um, and so I don't think the market's correctly responding. The market should be saying, I mean, are people actually going to shut down? Do you think in the U.S. people are really going to accept a full lockdown like they did last year? I don't think there's a per chance no. in hell. I think, and I, no, I and I mean this not no. on any side of the, I don't think anyone in the world truthfully is, I think, and you heard this, if you listen to BBC, I think the, the, um, the Brits have been great about complying with these restrictions, but I think they're at their, everybody's sort of at their wits end. So I don't think the ability, you know, certainly we can continue to constrain international travel, but I don't think we're going to be, I don't think the genie's out of the bottle. Um, I, I went to dinner in Denver and it, I mean, it was just it, everywhere you go, it's bananas. And I mean, um, Casper Wyoming hotels are, were sold out, you know, I mean, the genie is out of the bottle. People are, the pent up demand is there and they're doing it. So I, I think the, um, the fears on the Delta variant are, are being a little over, overdone in terms of the trading perspective, not saying they're not real. I'm just saying from a trading perspective, I think it's a bit much. And I think that's being, that's being oh, borne okay. out right now in oil prices. All right. Natural gas. Last, $3.61 for the August contract. We've had a nice run in natural gas. We're up significantly since last year. 360 is very compelling. And pretty much everything in dry gas land is economic. Maybe even some Barnett stuff at $3.60. Certainly North Louisiana is really compelling at those prices. Next week, where do you think we're going to be? Over the summer bulge or or even higher. I'm gonna I'm gonna go just kick it off. I'm gonna go three seventy. Yeah, I, I mean I think that guess goes up. I'm, I'm more bullish on that. I think you can in, incrementally move higher. I mean it's it's hot, you know, and things are moving up. I think you can in, incrementally move higher. I I also think production is doing uh, product. I wouldn't say it's necessarily keeping pace, but I mean, and I know that we're we're going to continue to export a lot of nat gas and that's going to continue to rise. But I, I think prices have room to move higher on the nat gas side. And it looks like, honestly, they need it. They probably need a signal a little bit higher for, for step changes and to really drive sort of a, a rig response. But I'm, I'm bullish on that. I've said this before. I mean, Ethan's putting me on the spot for these weekly outlooks. I mean, what's a, a week is just, I mean, it's nothing in this. I'm going to do it. <laughs> in this game, it, it's hard. Um, I will add. I will add one thing on this. The the interesting perspective from this Doug conference too, and I, this comes into the your well, not weekly outlooks, but longer term outlooks. But ESG and just like I think I I'd seen a tweet that somebody was uh, upset that the keynote speaker and I missed it. It was that that first morning that the uh, keynote was not as was kind of poo pooing um, you know renewables uh, to a degree. I think that was the 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 gist of the tweet and. I thought it was interesting because obviously this is an oil conference and they, there was a, there was talk about ESG. Certainly companies were talking about it. There was a couple end panels that were talking about it and they were just saying that, you know, the role of the banks and insurance companies in really thinking about 
you know, the environmental side and the risk profile was big. Um, but it, it truthfully, that, that conference really was showcased to me how, how uh, polarized it is in terms of um, the environmental movement and, and ESG and how, you know, it is, it's valid, it's relevant, but it doesn't feel like it's, um, you know, it, it's weighing on the market. It's all these pressures. It's coming from the administration. It's, it's regulatory, but it doesn't fit into the bull story. It's pretty hard to, you know, have all this weight. And that, you know, we mentioned, we mentioned last week about the, that article that came out. Um, and I encourage everyone to read it. We put it on, we put a link to the article um, from the South China Morning Post on these, um, you know, Chinese company or these uh, BlackRock, um, State, State Street and um, Vanguard all with these uh, investments in Xinjiang. And we put a link to that article, but if you read it, it's so, so damning. I mean, and it's so, State Street, BlackRock, and Vanguard, that, that's all you hear about. If you turn on CNBC, you're going to hear those names 20 times during the day. And so, I mean, their holdings are vast and large in in the province of Xinjiang. And the reality is, is that it, it, it matters because, and all of this matters to me from a ESG perspective, is because, it makes the climate story so much weaker. It makes the E part of this so much weaker when these companies are saying they're about ESG and they're not even focusing on the human aspect. And when you've done the actual research, you realize that they're not really even focusing on the environmental aspect. But it's a huge deal that eventually, you know, it could be brought to bear that, you know, engine number one, what, what is the, you know, engine number one, all they're doing is really, you know, uh, playing games with with board seats and board members and you're starting to screw up you know holdings for shareholders of having X, exxon and, and shell and chevron in in their portfolios but the, what i'm pointing out is that it, it seems really messy to have a continuation of these massive ESG pressures and regulatory pressures a flip in your account of more rigs that are private um and things continuing on as is this is going to continue to be an exceptionally bifurcated not just in the u.s but bifurcated world and i think it's going to be a problem Yes, and that is an excellent stopping point. I agree with you. There's a huge divergence. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. It's July 19th, 2021, and this has been PetroNerds episode 22 with Tricia Curtis, the CEO of PetroNerds, and me, Ethan Bellamy. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ethan. Bye.